Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here, we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here, we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true. But all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of. And coming up, the heaviest of novels, the unbearable lightness of being. I'm not going to talk about uh, Nietzsche or eternal recurrence, at least not yet anyway, but maybe a more trite version of the same idea that, uh, you know, the kind of idea that history just repeats itself. The background of today's focus, uh, The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, or Kundera, I'm not sure, but the background of this novel, or the plot such that it is, is set around the 1968 Soviet invasion of then Czechoslovakia. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this, because this episode is definitely not the wisdom of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, but I don't think we need to squint too hard to see some obvious parallels to today's Russian aggression in Ukraine. And the more I thought about it in my kind of simplified uh, Sesame Street view of history, part of me thinks that I don't know, the the Russian-Soviet brain trust, not the people themselves, but those in charge, they're just not good at making friends. Like today, Putin's trying to will a, a kind of a new Warsaw Pact into existence, bullying neighbors into being buddies. You know, I know this because I, too, have all my friends through through sheer tyranny of will and a liberal use of grotesque violence in order to collect, you know, a friend group. So, good buddy, of, you know, your own free will or maybe the doctrine that's been imposed upon you, tell everyone about the unbearable lightness of being. Well, as usual, I think I understood about half of what you just said. I mean, the first part made sense. But you lost me with that reference to your circle of friends, though. And plus, you you don't have any friends. But life is too short to keep talking about this. So let's just get to it. So first, and uh, as usual, a brief summary. So The Unbearable Lightness of Being was written by the uh, Czech Milan Kundara. And it was published in 1984. It tells the story of a young woman in love with a man torn between his love for her and his habitual womanizing and one of his mistresses, and her humbly faithful lover. The story takes place mainly in um, Prague in the late 1960s. One of the main themes of the novel 
includes the idea of sexual liberation versus commitment. But maybe the biggest question that the novel poses is how it is we are to give our life meaning in the face of a transient life. And finally, like you said, The Unbearable Lightness of Being was adapted into a 1988 film of the same name. Unfairly, I kind of view acting as a quote-unquote light thing, so to speak. You know, glorified child's play in a way. Especially the way, you know, the way I envision most actors doing it. But that definitely doesn't take into account all those maniacs, those method actors. I'd love to spend this time making fun of Jared Leto here, but it feels like everybody is clowning him right now. And I'm like the uh, pretentious indie rock snob. I, I really hated him before it was cool. Now it's gone way too mainstream. A more obvious method actor focus would be Daniel Day-Lewis. He actually starred in the movie adaptation of our book today, an adaptation that made uh, today's author vow to never allow any more adaptations of his work. Take that for what it is, but if, you know, Danny Boy and his method acting, like let's say he did Lincoln Part 2, it wouldn't shock me if he pushed for the assassination to be real. God help us if he ever plays Hitler or Stalin. But it does feel undoubtedly that this way of acting, this method, is heavy. I can just see it, like preparing for the unbearable lightness of being, the sheer irony of Daniel Day-Lewis taking his heavy, heavy approach to playing the light character of Tomas. But let's forget about the movie. How about the book? How do various characters in this novel actually embody the aforementioned heaviness and lightness? You say acting is a, is a light thing. It's, uh, it's funny. I think the great Marlon Brando would agree with you there. I mean, after all, most people do it pretty much all day long, he says. But yeah, anyway, this lightness versus heaviness theme, that is central in this novel. And it's something that's exemplified in the views and the lives of the characters. Okay, but before I get there, let me back up a bit and set the context a little. So what's important to notice at the outset is Kundera's reference to the Greek philosopher Parmenides at the beginning of the novel. Now, Parmenides plays an important role for Kundera. How so? Well, Parmenides conceived of the world as divided into pairs of opposites, like, um, like lightness and darkness, and, uh, and fineness and coarseness, and so on. Now, one half of the opposites he took to be positive in nature, and the other half, negative. So, um, lightness was positive, and darkness and weight, well, that was negative. But here's the thing. Was Parmenides right about this? This is one of the essential questions Kundera is exploring in this novel. What Kundera does is he existentializes these two opposites. So, what he's really asking is whether it's better to live with lightness and freedom, or with uh, weight and responsibility. Now, taken in this sense, is it really true that heaviness is deplorable and lightness so splendid? Okay, so this idea of lightness and heaviness can apply to many things in life, 
But what Kundara focuses specifically on are human relationships. So let me run through a couple of the major characters and their relationships to see how this, how this works. Okay, well, first of all, we have Tomas. So at the beginning of the novel, we read that Tomas has been living as a bachelor for 10 years. Now, there's an absolute absence of burden in this sort of life. And uh, tellingly, Tomas is said to be lighter than air, with his movements as free as they are insignificant. Okay, so, well, what happens? Well, he, he meets Terza, who absolutely loves him. And he's pulled in by her and takes that relationship more seriously. For example, when he was, um, when he was living lightly and freely as a bachelor, Tomas didn't sleep beside his mistresses. But upon meeting Terza, however, he allows her to pull him down and hold his hand while they sleep side by side. But this is to allow himself to, in some sense, be anchored to someone. It's an expression of his longing for some kind of um, long-term meaning through loyalty and commitment. In staying by her side, Tomas limits his freedom, albeit only partially, and thereby produces a heaviness or existential weight that wasn't in his life before this. And this is basically Tomas throughout the novel. It's someone who, who wavers back and forth between existential lightness and weight, but who seems to, as he ages, embrace the idea of some weight in his life. And part of the reason for this is because, as Kundara says, the heavier the burden, the closer our lives come to the earth, the more real and truthful they become. Okay, but there's another really important character, Sabina. Sabina is an existentially light character, living a life of freedom and sexual liberation and acting on um, self-interested impulses. After betraying her husband, she becomes a mistress and, from that point on, doesn't allow herself to fall into any burdensome relationships. The point is, is that Sabina is living in an existentially light way. But here's the thing. Ultimately, this way of living lightly, this way of avoiding commitment or anything burdensome or restricting in her life, well, it produces nothing but emptiness all around her. So her drama becomes not one of heaviness or, or weight, but one of too much lightness. She feels the burden not of weight, but of lightness. In her soaring away from the earth, where there is no longer any significance to anything, she experiences the dizzying, unbearable lightness of being. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, both Tomas and Sabina remind me a bit of, well, Peter Pan. I mean, it's interesting that Peter Pan's mode of transport is flight, right? In this sense, he's weightless and unburdened. He can just fly away from challenges and soar in a directionless, open freedom. And of course, this is basically what has become known as the um, Peter Pan Syndrome. It's when an individual does everything in their power to avoid growing up, to be the eternal child, 
The Peter Pan syndrome is one that causes individuals to avoid real responsibility and instead continue to behave into adulthood as a child would. It's a, it's a stunted life marked by passivity and a lack of direction and, and purpose. But yet, all this said, I don't know, well, not losing ourselves in it completely, maybe to keep a little of the eternal child in us isn't such a bad thing after all. I mean, Carl Jung certainly thought that sometimes living provisionally, imaginatively, impulsively, and without heavy commitments, was, was healthy. For Jung, there's real value in integrating into oneself the child archetype, especially in the, in the afternoon of our life, as this is when it can serve to revitalize our daily existence and provide us with a sense of newness and freshness that's often the first casualty of old age. There are some truly great streaks in sports. I know we have a decent amount of listenership outside of North America, so bear with me a little bit. Even if you're not that familiar with baseball, you might have heard of Joe DiMaggio. Hell, he was name-checked in one of Simon and Garfunkel's most famous songs, uh, Mrs. Robinson, a song that last I checked had like 400 million streams on Spotify. This guy, he had a 56-game hitting streak, a streak that helped make him so famous that he parlayed it into marrying Marilyn Monroe. The Canadian version would be hockey superstar Wayne Gretzky. He had a 51-game point streak, a streak that may have had a hand in him marrying uh, one of the stars of Police Academy 5 and The Beastmaster. But in the wisdom of world, our boy Freddie Nietzsche seems to be on a similar streak. I, I should consult the official guide and record book, and it feels like he is just on a tremendous roll. Okay, now that I look at it, it turns out our last episode on Beckett, he didn't get a mention. So the streak's over, but hey, with all great athletes, a new streak starts now. I don't know if this will jeopardize his hopes for marriage to Jennifer Lawrence, but I can say for sure that he had a clear influence on this novel. Beastmaster. Wow. I don't know where you get these references. And Nietzsche and Jennifer Lawrence, two names that you just never hear together. And um, never will again, I'm almost certain. Anyway, I think your point was that Nietzsche had a, had a strong influence on this novel. And... That's true. So, in what way exactly? Well, Nietzsche talked about something he called the eternal return, or eternal recurrence. So, what is that? Well, it's this. Nietzsche's concept of eternal return asks you to imagine discovering that the life that you currently live has to be relived for eternity, in such a way that, quote, there will be nothing new in it. But every pain and every joy and every thought and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you all in the same succession and sequence. End of quote. In other words, it asks you to consider the possibility that the life that you now live will have to be lived once again and innumerable times over again. And each time there will be nothing new in it but everything will be exactly the same as it is now. Now, 
Nietzsche meant this as a kind of existential challenge. That is, it asks you, what would you think of such a prospect? Would it transform you, or would it break you? Do you have the courage to affirm your life if every single moment, both good and bad and indifferent, were to return eternally? Or would you hesitate or have to reject it because the life you now live is marked by regret or bitterness because you wish things had gone differently? And if so, what would you need to change in your life to make that affirmation? Could you even make that change? Anyway, as you see, this idea of the eternal return would amount to the greatest weight, right? As of course, every single decision that you make would involve asking whether it's something you'd be happy doing not once, but an infinite amount of times. Suffice it to say, there's a substantial existential heaviness in all of this, no? Every moment, every choice is infused with gravity and importance. Now, of course, Nietzsche's response to this was to embrace eternal return and the burden of weight that went with it. And for him, this was really equivalent to learning to embrace and love necessity or one's fate. Okay, but how is all this connected to the novel? Well, one thing that Kundara does is he compares living lightly with living in a in a linear fashion, or in a straight line with an, with an unknown future. And he compares living heavily with um, repetition and fate. So living lightly in a straight line with no discernible future is partly to say that not only is everything you do only going to happen once and then be over, but it's also to say that everything you do is fortuitous and, and contingent, that it could have been otherwise or needn't have happened at all. And what this really adds up to is that everything is without meaning or significance. But living heavily involves seeing things as necessary or or faded, and it involves wanting the repetition of events, those, for instance, that characterize a meaningful or long-term relationship. I mean, at one point in the novel, Tomas is debating whether or not to return to Prague after Teresa has left him in Zurich. Now, once he decides to follow her back, he tells his new boss, it must be. In other words, he has to follow Teresa back. It is his fate. He has no choice. And though he struggles with it, it's just this attitude that gives that relationship meaning and significance. It grounds it in a necessity that's weighty, but solid and reliable. It removes it from the light and flighty realm of contingency. By Tomas seeing Teresa as a must, he invests their relationship with a heaviness that grounds it in reality and truth. But all this, in a way, is to accept the the circular notion of eternal return. It is to want and long for a repetition and a fate, and so a burden of obligation that creates meaning. It's a full commitment to life. You know, all this makes me think of a wonderful little passage from the little-known French philosopher, Gabriel Marcel. So, 
he's talking about the genesis, the, the cause of those deep and lasting friendships in our life. And he asks, how did they originate? How did it happen to be the case that we found these amazing people? What explains it? Well, Marcel says that the, the popular answer is coincidence. You know, that it was just lucky chance that both parties happened to be at a certain place at a certain time, and that's the cause. That's that. But Marcel says that everything in him protests against such a, a simple formula of an answer or explanation. He thinks he would in effect be betraying his friend if he acknowledged that their whole friendship simply might not have happened, if it was just grounded in contingency. Coincidence and contingency and chance is not what many of us feel is the truth when we're pressed to explain our deepest encounters with another person. No, that doesn't seem to do justice to the weight and importance of them. Now, Marcel thought that a, that a mystery lied at the root of this. Maybe. Or maybe it's because we just reject the idea that the love of our life might be born of something light. No, our love had to be. It must be. And so with it, the weight that makes it as real as it could ever get. Listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode Ecclesiastic. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes.